0: The cost of living and housing affordability is biting in Melbourne and Victoria and more broadly, uh, not just because of rate rises, but due to a squeeze on the number of properties available at affordable rents, among other issues like inflation, um, supply chains, etc. Ahead of the state election in November, we've been keeping a focus on state government policy and one of our regular voices is Emma King, CEO of VCOS. Uh, VCOS has released a whole host of recommendations, including putting a number uh, on the shortfall for... community and public housing property investments among many others and they are wanting to talk about what a state of well-being might look like and emma it's great to have you on triple r i'm interested in what a state of well-being might look like um thanks for being there oh thank you so much for having me and so why the focus then on on a well-being economy and and what what would we be doing differently i guess if we if we had such a thing
2: so great question. So the focus really goes to, um, there's a real disconnect, I think, between you know, how we discuss the prosperity of our state and what the lived experience is of people you know, in our broader community. And we're seeing that disconnect between you know, the headline economic indicators like GDP and gross state product and those sorts of things. So people hear that the community is doing really well, but it might not actually match with their experiences. And when we talk about wellbeing economies, it's worth mentioning, many of the listeners might have heard about the approach that New Zealand has taken and Iceland and Wales and others, where they've really um, focused around actually how do we think about social progress and how do we target funding so that we genuinely make the biggest the biggest difference, and we're hearing lots of commentary federally about this at the moment. With Jim Chalmers talking about measuring what what matters, so we're advocating that we that Victoria should be a wellbeing economy, and we should deliver wellbeing budgets. So it's about identifying, you know, what are the outcomes that we want? How do we measure those? And for any minister or their department, when it comes to budget time, they've got to be able to demonstrate how they're doing this. So, for example, things like loneliness um, in, our, in our society at the moment. So for any department looking at, you know, if loneliness or, you know, combating loneliness was going to be identified as a priority, what are, what are they actually doing that's going to look to, to combat that real scourge of loneliness that we're seeing at the moment?
1: And, I mean, that all makes a whole lot of sense, Emma, but it's kind of surprising, I suppose, that that kind of cost-benefit analysis doesn't normally accompany budgets or isn't really front of mind for for treasurers and governments when they're putting together budgets, you know, on on successive years. Why, Why hasn't that sort of been done? Why isn't that the norm come budget time?
2: I reckon that's a really great question, and I, I think it goes down to that the disconnect we're seeing at the moment, but I think the norm is what we see is that spend on kind of that infrastructure approach and that focus, a really big focus on GDP. So we often hear, and that's not the case at the moment, but almost like, you know, isn't it great we've got a AAA credit rating or how well we're going on our credit rating? And that tends to be, you know, the the focus of government because obviously it goes to how much they can lend money for and a whole raft of other things. So those those true economic indicators. But what we know is there's a divide between those economic indicators because we could have, for example, and we have had in the past a triple A credit rating, but at the same time we've got a hundred thousand people who are languishing on a waiting list for public and you know community housing. So there's a disconnect there and this is one way to join that up and what we know as well is, is you know when we we go to create your know, well-being economy in the first place, one of the important things that international jurisdictions have done have has literally been to go around and to talk to people around around the, their jurisdiction to say, well, actually, what matters to you? So to genuinely listen to people who might not or don't normally get a seat at the table, um, to find out what actually matters to people and how do we how do we kind of balance the two? Because we've got to look at you know the, you know the economic. Um, social, cultural, environmental domains and recognise that they're, they're all inextricably linked.
0: And we do have a, a federal budget coming up in October and then a, a month later a, a state election here in Victoria. Are mm. you expecting to see wellbeing type measures in that federal budget and potentially influencing um, the, the way that we, we vote in November?
2: I think it's going to be real. The timing is really interesting and we've certainly heard Jim Chalmers speak about um, he's very interested in wellbeing budgets. He said that there will be a focus. My sense is this will be a very first step. I don't know how far into that we'll go but he has talked as well about measuring what matters. I have to say that's really heartening to hear that and that's the approach we'd like to take at a state level as well. I Yeah, there's lots of speculation at the moment I was reading some in the paper today around you know they're kind of going back because they've got this joint pressure around what do they cut back on but at the same time how do you make people's lives better so I think they're going back and doing a bit of a a scan in terms of looking at what perhaps was signed off in the last days of the previous government but actually where there's opportunity for more and I do have to call out because I know they've made a a commitment to not um, increase the amount of job seeker and just to say like it's It's such a missed opportunity and I would hope that in the future, in the very near future, that is reconsidered because it's so important and at the same time we know there's a discussion around the Stage 3 tax cuts continuing, and there's a real disconnect there of going, well, actually, the ver- people in the very lowest incomes who have been confined to a life of poverty and whom any dollar they get goes back into the economy are being missed out, while at the same time, people who are doing very well will be getting thousands of dollars more in their pocket.
1: Yeah and and, I mean something we've spoken to you about a few times on this show is that the state of kind of housing and homelessness in Victoria and I mean you know the housing situation for people there's there's a range of challenges I suppose with rising cost of living and and rent costs soaring as well Um, you know in addition to the um, the experience of of homelessness of, of people in this state as well and I mean Victoria has the Victorian government has pledged more than $5 billion to increase social housing stock. But, you know, the state also has the lowest proportion of public community housing in Australia as well. How significant is is that issue for that broader push, I suppose, towards a, a well-being agenda and well-being at, at the centre of, of the election um, come November?
2: Look, it's huge, and you've actually captured the issue beautifully in terms of we've seen this, you know, really profound investment in terms of the big housing build, and it's important to acknowledge that but also to acknowledge that we need to see a pipeline um, of investment in terms of looking at how we deliver the housing that we need. So we we know that we need at least 60,000 social housing properties by... 2032, so that's another 51,000 new homes on top of the current housing big build, and it's a bit like a puzzle. If like, there's all different parts that go into making that happen. So there's a number of things I think in terms of looking at direct government investment, but also looking at you know how we raise money through new and existing revenue streams. Developers have to play their part. You know, we I know we saw that failed scheme around the levy, um, etc. But there's got to be a financial levy and door, you know, inclusionary zoning. Um, and from my point of view, I don't really care how it's done. I, I just want something that's legislati- legislated, that's meaningful and developers can't wriggle out of. Because no matter what, we've got to make sure that, you know, as well, any housing housing's accompanied by investment in the support services for people, you know, for some of whom might face challenges holding on to their housing. Um, and we've got to look at that together because it really is multifaceted.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in in uh, your sort of recommendations, I guess, uh, Emma, uh, Emma's joining us, CEO of um, Emma King uh, from VCOS. Uh, you also highlight that we need to make homes safe and liveable for, for low income Victorians. How does that twin together?
2: Oh, look, it's a, a, sort of a combination and, and broader, but in terms of looking at how we make homes livable and accessible, knowing that for all of us, the first thing that we need is somewhere safe and affordable to live, which is partly why we're calling for the investment in housing that we are, because we know there's so many people who um, don't have somewhere safe to live at the moment or who are, who are languishing in entrenched homelessness. And that might mean the people that we see on the street is such a small proportion of the people who are homeless. We know there's lots of people who are couch surfing, lots of people who are sleeping in cars, etc. as well. So one of the things that we saw that was great, actually, during the pandemic was a kind of housing first approach that the government took and they you know they, they took that approach at speed, but really looking at how, the Housing First approach really goes to giving people who have been long term homeless a stable home first uh, so we think that there's some real promise in there despite the sort of bumps along the way because the Homeless to a Home program supported about 2,000 people to shift from emergency hotel accommodation into permanent housing that's a pretty extraordinary achievement so that's one of the other things I'd, I'd call out as well alongside kind of staying the course on the rental fairness reforms uh, because, you know, we we know we've seen some minimum standards come in. We've got to stay really strong on those minimum standards for renters and actually leave some of them. So one example would be um, looking at air conditioning in in summer. We know people are literally, you know, heat waves are are the biggest killer, actually, in terms of looking at natural disasters. And we've got to look at ways that we can we can address that because we, we know the issues are really significant.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just, just sort of on, on homelessness, um, uh, just, mm. just for a moment longer, the Productivity Commission, I understand, recently reviewed the current national agreement on homelessness and has handed mm. the report to government, which, you know, hasn't been made public just yet. Mm. But do you see kind of a, uh, you know, what's happening at the federal level to feed into, you know, potentially um, a, a more, uh, I don't know, robust or... or committed attempts to address homelessness in this state going forward?
2: Look, I'd hope so because what we've seen through the big housing group, we've seen the state government step up and put this phenomenal amount of money in but as I said, we know that we need more and we haven't seen the federal government step up and play their part four years. So you, I'd really hope that there's a call from the Productivity Commission in to, to, well, to really call that out and hold the federal government to account in terms of working with state governments at, around how we provide social housing across the country and I guess in our case particularly in Victoria. But it's such a profound issue and we can't leave like I don't want to let the states off the hook but at the same time we've got to acknowledge that we need the federal government in there working alongside. There's so many different levers in this, like it's not one, there's not one silver bullet for want of a better term. So it's actually looking at, well, how do we have the federal government step in and really um, play their part as well?
0: Um, We're still a couple of uh, months out and we hope to have you back a couple of times before the the state election, Emma, Uh, but do you have a sense yet of what the Victorian government or what the parties um, will take to this upcoming election, I guess we've got on one hand a bit of discussion around infrastructure and and health. But I mean, are are you starting to get a strong sense of what those, um, you know, vying to to govern govern Victoria are standing for um, leading up to this election?
2: Look, I think it's going to be interesting. Obviously, there'll be a big health focus. And I guess my hope as well, I understand that, you know, given the very dire circumstances we've been in and, and the reality, you know, we've done it, everyone's done it so tough over the last two and a half years. I think we're very focused on hospitals and ambulances, and I totally understand that. But I would really hope that we start to have a real focus on prevention. And early intervention, and particularly when you look at, you know, the the findings of the Mental Health World Commission, um, a lot of their findings go to prevention and early intervention, and we're seeing some early work there. Um, I think it'll be really interesting as we move further to see actually where, as you say, if. if you know, we're waiting for the, the, um, the, the parties and, and independents to put their, their policies out, but we'd love to see some focus around how we address loneliness and isolation, You know how we tackle a digital divide, um, early childhood inequity, net zero emissions. Surely, there's got to be some promises in there around when we, we look at addressing climate change, for example, um, and climate protection, and um, lots more, I think, in terms of women's equity. There's a big list,
0: really, isn't there? There is. <laughs> when you start saying it, I go, oh, yeah, there's just so many things. Uh, Emma, it's great to have you on Triple R. Thanks so much for being there this morning. Ah, oh, thank you for having me again. Lovely to chat to you. Likewise, um, Emma King, there, CEO of VCOS. and if you're interested in uh, taking a look at the Wellbeing Agenda, you can find it um, really front and centre on
1: their website. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Now, you just might have heard that Queen Elizabeth II died last week, aged 96, and the days since have been, co- of, of course, been saturated with. Responses from politicians, celebrities and members of the public as well across our screens and across our airwaves. But someone whose response I am yet to hear is that of Jeff Sparrow, columnist with Guardian Australia, lecturer at the University of Melbourne and regular guest on this show. Jeff, welcome back. Always great to chat.
3: Always great to chat to you guys.
1: And so uh, how have you observed the past four days or so as the world has reacted to news of the Queen's passing?
3: (laughs) It's been been quite a thing. I mean... uh... You know, one of the aspects that struck me was on on the same day that the um, the the death was reported, um, a bunch of climate scientists released a report saying that the world had probably passed a whole series of crucial tipping points. Um, you know, to do to, in terms of glaciers melting and um, you know various other symptoms of a general environmental crisis. Yet that wasn't. Um, that wasn't the event that provoked us to suspend Parliament for two weeks and to have the media, you know, devoting 24-7 sombre coverage. Instead, we were focused on the uh, death from old age of a uh, 96-year-old billionaire aristocrat. So make of that what you will.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, it makes sense that it's reported you know, and and I think people have been preparing in the media anyway for reporting on this at short notice for for a very long time. And one thing that I wasn't aware of was the um, the protocols around what happened, and we're seeing Anthony Albanese going through those at the moment, and he's a well-known Republican. I, I wonder if you've got thoughts around that, um Jeff
3: yeah it is interesting isn't it i i um was reminded of the uh, the the treatment of the death of Diana all of those years ago and I actually went back and um had a look at some of the coverage of that and um what's kind of fascinating is that as over the top as the media's treatment of the Queen's death has been, it is so much less than um, the response to Diana's death. You know, markedly so. I mean, back then, you know, back then, was the the, the 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 sort of grief policing was just just insane. And I had quite forgotten. Perhaps other people knew this, but I I had forgotten that um, after Diana's death. Um, one target of the grief policing was, in fact, the Queen herself, and there was a prolonged campaign by the, um, by the tabloids, um, you know, targeting the Queen for not mourning Diana enough, which is kind of ironic, given the stuff that's happening here. But in, in terms of the question about the Republic, I think that's really, really fascinating, because as you said in your introduction, there's been this long... Held sentiment that the death of the Queen would would be the sort of key moment for Australia to move to a republic, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm increasingly sceptical whether that's in fact the case, and I just reckon that you might in fact make the alternative argument, and that you know the events over the last few days have actually strengthened. Um, monarchical thinking and made the Republic um, somewhat more distant. Um, yeah, and I, I think it'll be really interesting to see
1: how that develops. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as I'm um, sure I'm not alone in this, but as I've, you know, watched some of the, the news that, that I could handle over the past four days, it's this incredible disconnect between, um, you know, I, I guess the relationship I feel with the royal family and just the extent of um, sort of reporting there has been, on it. But I mean, you know, some polls that have been done suggest that, that support for a republic have actually, you know, relatively low among the, the sort of lower or younger age demographic, which might come as a bit of a surprise to people for those who haven't, you know, grown up with a really strong connection to the British royal family. But, but I mean, what do you make of, of all this fanfare and I suppose a celebrity status as well of the Queen and, you know, Meghan and Harry and all that kind of thing and and Australia's move or potential move towards a republic?
3: Well, I reckon there's a, a, a few aspects to 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 think through. So the death of the Queen comes at this moment of prolonged um, social decline in Britain. you know this 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 prevailing sense that um, the, the, the society is in a deep crisis, you know with say the energy crisis being the most um, yet manifestation of that. and I think that that's perhaps added to the power of the monarchy in a sense that it seems, for some people, it's a legacy of a better time, mm. you know? Like, and so there's this sort of sense that the Queen was there when Britain was good, now Britain's crap. You know, and this is why the you know the, the, the monarchy is important. But I think perhaps more importantly, there is this profound contradiction running through the sort of the Republican campaign that we've seen in uh, Australia. That the general approach or approach of the Republicans have been to try to minimise what the shift to a republic would absolutely entail and to stress that there would be nothing substantive involved, it would merely be symbolic, you know, it's nothing to, to, nothing to worry about. And, of course, as soon as you make that argument, then it obviously raises the issue, well, if it's not actually going to make any difference, why should I get excited about it? Yeah. I suspect that, that that probably relates to why younger people in particular just cannot get... Particularly fired up one way or the other, because you know you can make it like quite obviously uh, by definition a monarchy is not a democratic um, a system of government. So you can make the argument that you know that this is a long overdue democratic reform that has you know has material consequences for how Australia is is is. is, is government you know we really have to think about you know Scott Morrison and his um his collection of ministries yeah. being signed off you know by the governor general to 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 know that the that the royal family and all the institutions go along with it actually do have a you know a real um a real role to play in the system of government. And so you could make an argument about this as a much-needed democratic reform, but that really hasn't been the argument that Republicans have tended to make. And by simply stressing it as a question of symbolism, I think a lot of people sort of respond as, well, God, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. There are more important things to worry about than, you know, symbolism.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because making the argument that it's – a benign change strengthens the argument that it's a benign figure there in the in a monarch being the head of state and i would say that and you know as you pointed out the uk is not thriving with a monarch so those kind of narratives that that having um, you know such a, a steady hand there as a head of state for a very long time has been in some ways beneficial or or a calming presence doesn't sort of bear out in in reality, which it's it's just look, at it has been really fascinating actually to see, and I know it's well documented, the narrative machine that is the the British Monarch or, or the firm as it as it's known. Um, you know, this focus on the Queen as a as a figure rather than on the institution. Do you think that will start to shift, Jeff? As of course, you know the 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 morning period um, comes to a close at the end of next week in Australia anyway, that we will start to see more of a focus on, on the institution and what King Charles of Australia you know, stands for
3: Yeah, I mean it's extraordinarily incoherent, isn't it? I mean one of the aspects that really brought that out for me was the the palaver about what was gonna happen at, at 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 the football something but yeah, almost nothing about. But um, you know, this this question about whether there was going to be a minute silence at the AFL games, and then they realised the Indigenous round was coming up, and this would be in inappropriate. It seems to me, it puts us in. The- Extraordinary situation that they're simultaneously saying that well, actually this would be inappropriate in the Indigenous round because of the relationship between the the Queen and colonisation, but they're also just saying well that's just a question for Indigenous people and actually it's good for the rest of us to celebrate it. Which, you know, it makes no sense um, at all and sort of highlights um, the the internal contradictions of the whole narrative. But I think the other. Uh, Aspect that we need to take into account is the Albanese government. The Albanese government's evident um, reluctance to court any kind of controversy at all, and that's, I mean, really clear hallmark of this, this this government. You know, not wanting to do anything that's in the slightest bit controversial. So while they are in theory committed to a republic. Um, I mean, Albert Easy is saying that the priority is going to be to, um, to get uh, to, to get the voice up, the voice to Parliament up first, which also re- requires constitutional change, and, and then only after that will they talk about a republic. And, and yet has the
0: Assistant Minister for the Republic in um, Matt Thistleweight.
3: Yes, indeed. But as soon as you think about that, you can start to see all of the problems because... I don't know about you, but I am increasingly thinking that there's a good chance that The Voice is not going to get up because it seems increasingly clear that the right is going to oppose it. You know, the, the Liberal Party is, Dutton is still sort of ambivalent about it, but um, increasingly, you know, the Sky News right is moving to overt opposition to The Voice. I I mean, I don't know, and I could be wrong about this, but I suspect Dutton will probably oppose it. Certainly he's not likely to support it um, with any kind of fervour. And that, I think, makes the... very difficult to get across the line and in that context if the voice doesn't get up and in fact becomes embroiled in controversy which I think now is looking like it will then it seems to me Albanese is going to be quite reluctant to follow that up with a second proposal for a referendum which will also be controversial it just seems very contrary to the kind of government they seem to be German to establish, which is very risk-averse. Now, I could be completely wrong about that. Perhaps the voice will be overwhelmingly um, carried, but I have to say that I think the signs for a republic in the immediate future are not particularly good.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he's put a, Albanese has put a lot of political capital into a referendum on the voice of parliament as well. So, I mean, I wonder sort of how much um, will they might have to, you know, regardless, I suppose, even of how that goes, it's going to be a big event, whatever the case, um, to then put to the people a referendum on on the Republic. That's another sort of big gamble to take politically, I guess.
3: Well, yeah, 100%, right? It seems to me it's only likely to happen if there is a real uh, popular upsurge in public enthusiasm for a Republic... And as yet it's not really something we're seeing. and, and again, because the sort of official republicanism is so melt toast that it just really doesn't inspire anyone very much. Like no normal no normal person <laughs> not many people care especially about, you know, symbols on banknotes and all that sort of stuff. I mean I suppose some people do care, but you know, it really does not seem the it really does not seem the most important priority yeah. given where we are at, um, at, 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 at the moment, you know, it seems to me in order to really get people enthusiastic, you have to start talking about things like, well, you know, the, the, the role the government general plays in the dismissal of the Whitlam government, the possibility that might happen again in the future, you know, how uh, and the notion of a, a, a monarchy that's determined by hereditary succession, you know... Um, helps to foster ideas of innate superiority, innate social superiority, which are fundamentally undemocratic, those kinds of things, right, to suggest that there's, there are real political consequences. But that's not the kind of Republican discourse we're hearing. In fact, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, who, you know, led the... Um, the last Republican referendum was, you know, popping up in the media a couple of days ago saying that he brought down his portrait of the Queen from his um attic and was staring at a gaze, you know, with his eyes filling with tears. I
1: mean, honestly. Yes. Triple R.
0: And journalists, uh, often foreign journalists, write the first draft of history. Uh, they make a bee line to the big global events and conflicts to chase the story, and communities around the world rely on their first-hand accounts. But until very recently, news journalists on the front lines, particularly in Conflict Zone, have been men. A new book called Through Her Eyes features and celebrates the experiences of foreign female foreign correspondents, many who are household names, others less well-known, uh, and has a look at the influence and importance of their work, and also their work to help us understand the world. Uh, it, the stories show how um, these women have changed the face of reporting too, not only by telling the stories of powerful men, but of the regular people caught up in world affairs. And one of the people behind the book is Melissa Roberts, um, a foreign correspondent herself. Um, welcome to Triple R, Melissa. It's really great to have you there.
4: Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Nice to meet
0: you guys. Yeah. And um, I mean, we spoke actually to your collaborator, Trevor Watson, last year about your book, Beijing Bureau. And now we have through her eyes. I mean, why the focus on telling the stories of foreign correspondents and what do you think it reveals to us, the experiences and, and the stories they tell us?
4: Well, I think you were right when you talked about it being the first draft of history. You're seeing through people's eyes exactly what they saw on the street uh, on a day-to-day kind of way. Um, it's it's exciting and thrilling, and it gives you a real sense of insight into what's going on. But also, I think, interestingly, you... Um, you get to understand the the people on the street and how they feel about things.
1: And so, I mean, women have been sort of were underrepresented across the media landscape for a very long time. And I'm interested, particularly when it comes to, to foreign correspondence. I mean, was this seen as, as particularly a job that was suited to men?
4: Look I think in, in years ago it really was seen as something that was very um very blokey it was always a, a certain type of um, powerful male individual who got the tap to go to to cover the big stories I mean the ABC which now has so many wonderful women on the ground covering fantastic uh, important stories they didn't send their first woman overseas until um, the 80s. That was Helene Chung. Uh, she went to China um, a couple of years, in fact, before um, my husband that you um, you mentioned, Trevor, was uh, posted to the Beijing Bureau, and I went along as well as a, a freelance correspondent. And that's how it often was in those days. Women kind of made their own way to the front or to the big story. Um, we paid our own ways. We we got there, and then we proved ourselves when we were uh, when we were there working. Uh, and then, after after not too many years during the eighties, after many people sort of did this, it just it became a bit more common in the late nineties. And now you're just as likely to see a woman um, covering a, a war as you are a man.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't seem uh, unusual to see a, a female reporter in, in combat gear and, and that sort of thing, in conflict zones. that's for sure, and they're, and they're reporting right now, aren't they, from, from Ukraine. But I mean, you opened the book with uh, a report from uh, a, a reporter called Claire Hollingworth. Can you sort of speak to the the significance of, of her sort of two sentences that you have in the book? Um, and I can read them out if you don't have them in front of you. Um there, there, Melissa. It says a 1,000 tanks massed on Polish border, 10 divisions reported ready for swift stroke. What were the significance of those two sentences?
4: Claire Hollingworth was uh, was an English uh, journalist. Uh, she she broke the story of World War Two with those few words. And she too was a, um, a stringer. She was a freelancer. She went to Europe and uh, went to Poland, where there were very few people, saw these tanks mapping on the border and filed to the London Daily Telegraph, effectively breaking the story of the century. It was preparations to begin, you know, what became a catastrophic war in Europe. Uh, and she was a woman. Now, she went on, of course, to be posted uh, as, a, as a journalist in her own right. And she went on to Beijing, where she worked alongside... Uh, Australian correspondent, um, and you know she's a, she's a very impressive individual. Now there are some other Australians who did the same kind of thing. There was Kate Webb, who was Australian, She became the UPI bureau chief in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Um, she had to pay her own way, and she freelanced there, and until she got she she sort of swung that job. She said that sometimes. Uh, She believed that she got the job because the the two men ahead of her had been killed in action Um, and she was in fact famously captured by the North Vietnamese forces and declared dead but then walked out of the jungle much to everyone's surprise.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing for, for women to sort of start to work in this industry that previously, you know, hadn't really been open to them. But another thing when we're talking about journalism, to, to have access or the ability to tell different kinds of stories as well. And um, I mean, one of the contributors, Kate Geraghty, talks about um, just just how, I suppose, her work in Afghanistan and, and her her status, I guess, as a woman enabled her to speak and, and, and learn more about the experience of particularly women in that country, which which wouldn't have been available to male correspondents. I wonder if you can speak to, I suppose, the different image of the outside world that we we got through female correspondents continuing to work in the field.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that women originally um, in journalism were confined to really covering soft stories. Uh, women were on the, the foreign, on the home pages, on the women's pages, doing stories about... About cooking and, and hints on how to keep your house tidy. I'm, I mean, I'm going back to the first half of the 20th century, I guess. But um, they were really, really confined to that kind of that kind of area, and they were covering these soft stories. When when World War II broke out, the, most Australian women were prevented from going to the front. They were allowed to go as far as the nurses' station, so they covered the stories of the people who were um, affected by the war, the the nurses doing their job, the wounded soldiers, the refugees, the people who were, were suffering and being dislocated. And in a way, once they got the opportunity to really move out and cover the big stories, women have remained interested in those stories. And I think they've really changed the way that we view the world and changed the way we cover the world. They're still reporting on these so-called soft stories but they're the real stories, of real people caught up in in life-changing events. I mean, traditionally, men covered like the tectonic shifts of history, the great man view of history. But now, we're all of us, male and female, much more interested in the story of the person sheltering in the basement in in Ukraine, rather than the name of the the general who ordered the bombardment or the number on the shelves that are raining down on them.
0: Yeah, it is fascinating to think that uh, women correspondents really uh, help change that focus and we're certainly seeing that from Ukraine now, aren't we? And you have a uh, an essay in the book from Barbara Miller, one of the ABC correspondents, who has taken in, in reporting that conflict a focus on, on people and Um, accounts of people in besieged cities in Ukraine. And, I mean, do you think now that that... I mean, we're seeing also male foreign correspondents take that approach to reporting world events and you see that really very much coming from that history of women's involvement in reporting, do you, um, Melissa?
4: Well, I do see that. I see that it's changed and I think that men... um well, feminism has has brought great changes on men and and delivered great benefits to men as well, and enabled them to think um, more about this this sort of the softer side of of their work, I guess as well. And I, so, I think the whole way that all journalists look at their job has um, has been transformed over over decades but yeah and I think we're all better for it I think it's it's more interesting fascinating to learn about these these real people I mean Barbara Miller is a case in point you mentioned her she saw these columns of of people fleeing their homes and didn't see um a tide of people she saw individuals who'd who'd left their homes and left everything behind and she was concerned about them um Sophie McNeil, who's gone on actually to work in, in human rights, actually put her story aside one time to save the life of a man who had come ashore in Greece um, on a boat of refugees from Syria and was completely lost and alone and but could could not have just walked by himself to the refugee camp. And so she... It is her story, but she also managed to save his life and remained connected with him and his family moving forward. And it's, I think that's so, um, it's moving to me that, that, that these women that have written stories in this book care so deeply for the people that they write about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're speaking with author and journalist Melissa Roberts all about her co-edited book Through Her Eyes: Australia's Women Correspondence from Hiroshima to Ukraine. And I'm interested in, in when you um you reached out to the different contributors um to write a piece for this book, Melissa? I mean, you know, some of them do reflect very directly on their, their gender as part of their reporting and, and others, you know, kind of simply tell a story of their experience reporting from particular places. But but when you did reach out, was gender something that, that I suppose these contributors had actively thought about and were highly aware of the role in that, um, in, in their careers?
4: Yeah, I think it was something that most people had thought about. There were a number of women who said um, mainly that it had never impacted on them. Um, Kate Geraghty, the uh, video journalist, said that she never felt that... Uh, the photojournalist, I'm sorry. She never felt that um, her gender had been in any way a barrier. And then, again, you have some other people like Diane Willman, who, um, who Trevor wrote a profile of, who had to pay her way to cover the war in... Um, in Lebanon, the Civil War in 1975. And she could not be sent there by the ABC. They just told her they she was unreliable. She might get married and, and have a baby, and then where would they be? Well, in fact, she did, while she was covering the Civil War, have a baby, Tarek, and she hid him under mattresses and continued on with her job. So um, she was a great inspiration to me when I was uh, a young girl. I wanted to grow up and be just like her. Um, Lorraine Stum, who covered um, the the bombing of Hiroshima, uh, she had a baby and uh, she had to freelance her way around the world, but she took baby Sheridan wherever she went. Um, But, and even today, I think a lot of the women have to think about how being a mother um, dovetails with their work as a journalist. And a lot of them said to me that they felt... You, you're always kind of in the wrong place. At that. You're, you're always worried if you're not at work covering the story, you're a bit worried about that. And if you are at work covering the story, you're worrying whether you should be at home um, mothering. So it, that it always is a challenge. Some of the women said, however, you get to be a kind of a neutral gender. I found this, Ginny Stein found this, um, that when you're covering uh, stories, you're allowed to go into the women's tent where the women are confined, maybe in some Middle Eastern countries like traditional areas of Afghanistan. But you're also allowed to meet with the men in ways that local women are not because you are in this neutral gender doing a job the job of getting their story out.
0: Fascinating. And, I mean, in the time we got left, I was quite taken with the essay written by Sulien Wong um, and it was entitled Race Traitor and that really um, detailed her experience. Um, I think she works for The Economist now uh, working uh, in China uh, in particular and she has a um, Chinese background but never had been to China before going there, um, having grown up in Malaysia and Australia. And um, maybe speak a little bit about her experience or her contribution, Melissa, because, um, you know, Issues of identity were also something that she was needing uh, to navigate when reporting from from Hong Kong and China.
4: Yes, Su Lin um, is a a brilliant journalist, born in Australia, went to ANU. Um, Didn't really engage with so much of her Chinese heritage until she was a a young adult. Um, She then found herself running um, afoul of, of China's very powerful nationalist, and they called her a race traitor. They believed that because she was ethnically Chinese, um, her parents had um, been born in Malaysia, so she's part of the diaspora, but they believed that she should uh, she should support Xi Jinping unquestioningly because of her, uh, her ethnicity, and that's something that she struggled with because she was harassed um, pretty profoundly on social media for that, but Su Lin's an excellent journalist, and, um, you know, we, she worked with us. She's the only one who actually doubled up uh, in this book and through her eyes and also on the Beijing Bureau because, um, you know, we, we both admire her so much as um, one of the young up-and-coming journalists. And she's now based in Taipei, so she'll be covering Asia from there and as somebody really to, to carefully watch.
1: And I wonder if if I could ask you sort of um, to reflect on the role of foreign correspondents today because we obviously over the years technology has advanced considerably and and you recount in the book um, you know writing stories on ancient typewriters um, and filing your copy via uh, telex which is um, you know very different to how people could report immediately from the field today with an internet connection and so on and and I suppose you know what role is there for correspondents making sense of countries especially for an Australian Australian audience and, 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 you know, given your history of freelancing in India as well, a country that Australia has a very strong connection with, both given our, our population, um, you know, rising numbers of, of Indian-born um, people living in Australia, but also as a very strong trading partner. So, so what is the role of correspondence making sense of the world for an Australian audience in, in today's context? Well,
4: yeah, you mentioned the old tech. Um, back in the day, um, it, it was. we used to use typewriters and then file by uh, either shouting it down a crackly telephone line or sending it on a telex, which meant that you had to type it into this clunky old machine that produced a, a, a ribbon with holes in it. And then once you've got a, a telephone line on the telex machine, you feed this ribbon back in and hope that it was all coming out down the end, and that your foreign editor happened to be standing near the machine and and could find it. Um, we could travel off to Afghanistan, for instance. You know, when we were in New Delhi, we went off to the border regions and and found our way into the refugee camps where we met uh, Mujahideen fighters who were the, the same people who would go on later to. They were fighting the uh, the Russians then, but they would go on later to fight the United States, we could spend, you know, weeks finding these people. It's not the case anymore. I mean, the internet connections, the social media has changed media out uh, hugely. Um, journalists are much more thinly spread. You can't take off and spend weeks finding a bunch of stories. You have to be doing long-form, short-form, and social media on the same day. I mean, Barbara Miller talks about um, having to... You work for the 7.30 report, having to work for news, having to work for current affairs and online. Um, so that's it's really a much more challenging job. Um, much the, the pay is lower and there's a great deal more work. But you also talked about how we make sense of the world, and it's really important to have Australians overseas looking at the world from an Australian perspective and telling Australians what Australians want and need to know and, and I think that's very important not to just rely on overseas news sources but then again we need to look at our own media and ask ourselves some serious questions about diversity because I've talked a lot in this book about the rise of women correspondents and many of them are, are brilliant people from Lebanon um, with with Middle Eastern backgrounds. We've got a few great journalists with Asian backgrounds, but it's not enough. We need more diversity. We need women and men from all different communities to be able to to tell us what they see and to have those kind of insights into communities that they may know a little better than um, than the rest of us.
0: Melissa, it's been great to have you on Triple R and um, those issues that you just raised there. Um, you, you very much uh, touch on also in this book, Through Her Eyes, and, yeah, we really appreciate your efforts and also that um, of Trevor bringing, bringing the stories to us. Um, all the best with it. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Dylan. It was great. Uh, likewise. I'm author and journalist Melissa Roberts there and co-author, co-author of a book called Through Her Eyes, which is out via Hardy Grant.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.